Our scripture reading today is from John 17, 1 through 5. If you'd like to follow along in our Pew Bibles, this is page 903. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is the word of the Lord. So excited to share with you all this morning. My name is Nathan. I'm one of the elders here. I'm not normally the guy that's up here teaching the word. Uh, Albert is out this week, but he'll be back next week as we continue the next chapters in our series in John. If you're here for the first time, welcome to Regen. It's a privilege for me to be up here, but that I would be asked to teach on a passage that's as rich and as special as this one is, is something that brings me a lot of joy, but to be honest with you, it's like this weight of responsibility to do justice to something as powerful as what we're going to learn today. So please pray with me as we seek to hear from God this morning. God, we thank you that you are in this place, uh, that as we gather in your name, you promise that your spirit would be near. So Jesus, would your words do their work in our hearts? Through the power of your spirit, would anything that is not of you pass away quickly? And would anything that is of you pierce into our hearts that we might turn to you? I pray this in your name. So we've been going through the whole book of John in the last six months or so. And, and as of late, we've been in chapters 13 to 16, which is this last night of Jesus before the crucifixion. It's called the, the upper room discourse. It's this time of Passover uh, where Jesus has gathered with his disciples and he's pouring out sort of just his, his final teaching, his final instructions and words to his disciples. And he's well aware of what awaits him in the next 24 hours. He, he knows the sting of betrayal, the agony of the cross that lies before him, the, the unimaginable weight of carrying the sins of the world unto his death. And not just any death, it's a different death than what you and I will ever have to experience. It's a death that's gonna exhaust the powers of death. And he's gonna overcome it so that we can receive uh, that victory over death. Uh, that triumphs. But I'm, I'm getting a bit ahead of myself because Easter is just still a few weeks away. But here they are in these three chapters. Their whole world is about to come crashing down. And even though he's about to endure something that excruciating that no one ever has had to endure before, what's he choosing to spend his time doing? He's spending time with his friends in this upper room. Focus on helping them because he knows what's going to happen is going to be super confusing for them. He knows what's going to happen is going to be disorienting, that they are going to be uh, distraught, devastated by the events of his crucifixion. So he's laid out in these chapters, in this upper room teaching, kind of like a survival kit for them to help weather the storm that's coming. 
And I think that this perspective on this teaching of Jesus can be helpful. It gives us a, a richer understanding of these teachings and what, what place they can occupy in our lives, especially in this season of Lent that we're in uh, as we prepare ourselves to receive this gift of Easter. We can identify with the disciples. We can say, I am utterly lost and in need. We can remember that also Jesus has said that that's, that's a blessed place to be. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So with, with his final hours that Jesus has with his beloved friends, what are the most important things that he wants his disciples to hold on to and to do in the storms that are coming up ahead? We've seen that he wants to emphasize that they serve one another. He's washed their feet. He's asked that they anticipate and look to the Holy Spirit for help. And that they remember the importance of loving one another. And crucially, that they would abide, remain, dwell in Jesus as the source of life. So now in John 17, there's sort of this transition from he's teaching, he's sharing, into doing something different. His final words to his disciples in chapter 17 are a beautiful prayer. In fact, this is the longest prayer of Jesus in the entire Bible, in the entire New Testament. So you'll probably see in your Bibles, if you have those open, that the title of this prayer is the High Priestly Prayer. And that's because in the Old Testament, there was a high priest who would serve in the temple and once a year was called upon to enter the most sacred place within the temple, the Holy of Holies, to intercede and make sacrifice on the people's behalf before God. So here we have Jesus on the night of his betrayal and arrest. In this new covenant that's being forged, he's interceding before God the Father on our behalf, on behalf of his followers, and he's preparing himself to be the substitutional sacrifice that the high priest would offer. So in a way, you can think of this prayer as this chapter of John 17 as sort of the holy of holies of the new covenant, this, this sacred space that Jesus is going to share with his followers. And now he's closing this special time of teaching that he's had with his followers in prayer. And we're given this amazing view into the heart of Jesus, into his priorities, into his desires for his friends and for us. It says in John 17, 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven. Kind of like he's wrapping up his sermon time, his teaching. And he's saying, now let us pray. And he lifts his eyes to heaven. And he begins to pray this long, majestic, glorious prayer. And we have this opportunity to overhear what's Jesus saying to God the Father. And really what honestly could be better for our souls, for our prayer lives, than to hear Jesus praying do you have any people in your life that uh, you just love to hear pray? That maybe they're you know, folks who are a little further down the road of faith than you are. They're family members or friends who have been faithful to the Lord. You just get to listen in to their prayers. And, you know, I'll be honest, sometimes in prayer, it's a struggle. You may feel distracted. You may feel a bit aimless or uh, even bored at times. But you probably have those one or two people around you that you've known for some time that is so refreshing, so energizing to hear them pray. And I still remember the prayers that uh, my papa, my grandfather on my mom's side would pray when he was alive on this earth. And it's one of the things that I miss most about him. 
he had been a missionary in Cuba uh, alongside my Nana. And together, they, they were there during the time of Cuban Revolution. He got polio at the time. They had seven kids that they were raising. So they, they knew plenty of times of peril, of need, and of want. And I can't remember a single prayer that I heard of his that wasn't fervent, that wasn't just reverent. He knew when he was praying that he had an audience before Yahweh himself. He believed in the goodness and graciousness of God as he prayed. And even something as simple as, you know, praying before a meal was a lot more than just like something you do and get out of the way before you can eat. Like he cherished the opportunity to pray before God. And I wish I'd gotten to hear more of his prayers. They were worshipful prayers. They were full of faith. And if you have someone in your life like that, it's a friend or a family member that you know, you know that it's just a privilege to get to listen in and to learn to care about the things that they care about, how to relate to God in, this, in a similar way to what they're relating to God. And here we have that, no less than from Jesus himself. We get to hear Jesus in this hour of great, great difficulty having this intimate prayer with the Father. And there's, there's three parts to this prayer. The first part, Jesus is praying for himself. In the second part of the prayer, he's praying for his disciples. And then finally, in the third part, he's praying for us, believe it or not, the ones who would follow later on. Today, I'm going to be covering the first two parts of this prayer, verses 1 to 19. And then next week, Albert's going to return and close it out in the teaching about how Jesus prays for us. So let's look at the first part of this prayer. Jesus is praying for himself, and he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. What's Jesus praying for as he prays for himself? Glory. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. I glorified you on earth. Now, Father, glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Glory. Why is Jesus so focused, so fixated on glory as he prays for himself? What's this glory that he's talking about? How often do we use that in our day-to-day language, glory? It's a very Bible word. It's a very churchy word. It's a bit disconnected from our 21st century vocabulary and, and ways of thinking about things. I think sometimes we're, we see these words in the Bible and we kind of like gloss over it. It's like, oh, it's, you know, it's a Bible word there. But if there's nothing else you get from this message, I hope it's this. I hope it's, you see that the glory of God is what all of this is even about. And by this, I don't mean this church stuff. I mean everything. Everything is about that. Our existence is about that. It wouldn't be an exaggeration or an overstatement to say that the manifestation of God's glory, it's the supreme goal of God in history, in creation, in each of our lives from beginning to end. If you try to look up a definition of, you know, what is the glory of God? Like, I, I tried looking this up in multiple sources, and it's, it's a slippery kind of concept. It's not, you know, a, a one-sentence clear definition to look up. It refers to his splendor, 
to his majesty, to his beauty, to his awesomeness, to his reputation, his fame, his renown. It's everything that is good that's worth celebrating about who God is. And to be clear, when we talk about God's glory, it's not, you know, that God is seeking to make himself shine brighter or to boost his ranking in the list of glorious things in the universe. There's nothing like that involved here. He's not seeking an ego boost as he's, you know, fixated on his own glory. It's kind of ridiculous to even think that he would resemble us in any way like that. He is God. The reason God is actually so passionate about his glory is because through it, that's how he can make himself truly known and experienced. I'll say that again because I want to make sure it sinks in. If I had more time, I'd probably say it a dozen times so it really sinks in. The reason God is so passionate about his own glory is because it's through his glory he can actually be made known and we can actually experience him. Why does he want us to know him and experience him and, and spend eternity with him in the first place? I think you know the answer to this, you know, if you've been in church for any amount of time. So do you know that God loves you profoundly in ways that break the confines of any metaphor that exists for love more than a mother, more than a father, more than a spouse, more than a shepherd and a sheep? Whatever metaphor there is, there's nothing more loving that God can do than to make himself known to us. Think about that. And honestly, you can hang up just about everything there is to the Christian faith on those two ideas, right? Number one, that God is supremely glorious. It's who he is. And number two, that in his love, he wants to make himself in all his glory known to us. That's it. I'll pause there because this is big stuff. This is like existential stuff. And I'm not even halfway through our message this morning. So I feel like I've, I've zoomed out to the really big picture, the, the Milky Way, you know, perspective of this. Uh, but it's March 3rd, 2024, and we're peering into this prayer of Jesus in, in John 17. So hang with me. Let's go. What's Jesus doing as he prays for his own glorification here? He's praying for his reunification with the Father, the assumption of his rightful place, on the right hand of God, above every other name, at the center of everything that there is in the universe. That's his glorification. Do y'all remember, as we you know, look back on the book of John and the, and the passages that we've studied, some things that Jesus has been saying throughout the book of John. He's been saying things about, it's not yet the hour. If you remember his first miracle in Cana, in Galilee, when he turned water into wine, he has this kind of strange interaction with his mother. It always stood out to me. Mary has said, you know, son, can you do something about this wedding? It's kind of a disaster right now. And what does he say? He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. It's like, whoa, Jesus, that's it's something. But this, this hour is the hour he's been referring to. What's happening right now? It's the climactic purpose of his whole mission. It's the reason that he even took on human flesh in the first place. Verse 1, Father, the hour has come. The hour he's referring to is this glorification hour. But we know it's going to look radically different than anything we could even expect. 
because that supreme glory that he's going to receive is going to be bestowed upon him on a cross of suffering. Jesus knows that when he's praying these words, what he's saying is, Father, crucify me. He says, allow me to demonstrate my unsurpassable goodness and love, my glory as a ransom payment for the whole world. The same unsurpassable glory, goodness, and love that is yours, Father, let me demonstrate it that I might give eternal life to all whom you've given to me. What do we do with that? What do we do with that glorification of Jesus? What's our response to something as unfathomable as that? The Westminster Shorter Catechism has this very short way of putting it, which I appreciate a lot. It puts the primary purpose of humanity as being to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Isn't that beautiful? And how's that for good news, too? You thought that because Jesus died on the cross that, you know, you needed to pull yourself together and start shaping up? Something like saying, well, Jesus died on the cross for me, so I guess the the least I can do is try to be better and stop messing up so much. But that's not it at all. It's not what Jesus is saying. It's more simple. It's more wonderful than that. He says, I want you to see me, to know my glory. In the form of the freedom from sin and death that I have purchased for you. And to enjoy my goodness, to enjoy my splendor and my majesty. Because it's then, when you're following me and you're enjoying that, that you'll find yourself being transformed, actually, into the likeness of Jesus. And that's what we're going to talk about next. As we continue in this prayer of Jesus. How the glory of God transforms us. So he proceeds to pray for his disciples. He picks up again in verse 6. He says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Jesus is lifting up his followers, his 11 disciples that remain with him. And we know this because he says, I've been with them and they've kept your word. 
Think about that. Isn't it kind of interesting that Jesus is saying, with all we know of, of the disciples and their, their blundering and their dropping the ball and their imperfections, that he says, they've kept your word. What he's describing here is not infallibility of his followers. What he's describing is this abiding and trusting commitment to Jesus that showed that they were actually truly and sincerely following God. For all that they don't yet understand, these disciples at least get something. They have received the words of Jesus and they've believed that he was sent by God. And that, according to Jesus, is enough for him to say, they are yours, Father. Let's look at ourselves for a second. Maybe you call yourself a Christian and you identify with this faith. Maybe you're here because you're curious, you're wanting to get a sense of what this stuff is all about. And it might seem to you that there's still a lot that you don't understand, that you're not sure you can get aboard with all the Christian stuff, right? So you're, you're hedging and you're, you're waiting before you really take some leap or, or make some sort of commitment there. To any of you who find yourselves there, I, I say, don't let some elaborate, overcomplicated version of Christianity keep you from Jesus. What Jesus is telling you is that belonging to him is fairly simple. It doesn't require full understanding, which actually nobody has it. It doesn't require that you hold the same opinions and political views and, uh, I don't know, Christian culture-y stuff. All we're told to do here is take Jesus at his word. Believe that he is God and therefore that he is sinless and that he was sent. Sent for what? He was sent to die in your place, to save you from the powers of sin and death and to give you new life. And it's then that we belong to Jesus and, and we belong to God the Father and something happens. Something glorious happens within us. Verse 10 tells us that Jesus said, I am glorified in them. Here's that concept of, of glory again that we, we so often just goes right over our heads. Except now it's no longer this thing that exists out in the heavens or, or even something that Jesus is saying is, you know, his sacrifice that's coming up. It's something that's taking hold of us. We become alive to God's glory. It lives within us. It transforms us into people who are more like him. And we'll see now as we continue through this prayer that there's, there's actually two ways that this glory takes a hold of us and, and transforms us. Jesus makes two petitions in this prayer for his disciples. He, number one, keep them in your name, in verse 11. And number two, sanctify them in the truth. Let's look at the first one. He says, keep them in your name that they may be one even as we are one. What does it mean to be kept in the name of God? The name of God is not what you and I think about when we, we talk about each other's names, right? It's like, I'm, I'm Nathan. Nice to meet you. God's name isn't God. God is a, a title. The closest thing we have for a name of God in the Bible is Yahweh from the book of Exodus, the name that Moses says, who will I say has sent me? And God says, Yahweh. Even that's sort of this undefinable kind of weird description. It's I am who I am. 
The fact is God's name, a lot like his glory, is more like an attribute of his. It's his reputation. It's his character. It stands for his resources and his power, his ability. It's sort of like back in the day, I don't know, medieval times when someone would say, stop in the name of the king. Like there's, there's authority in a name. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. And that's what you see often in the Bible when people in the Bible pray things like, do something for the sake of your name. Those are requests that are asking that God act in accordance with his power, with his abilities, with his character. So there's this interesting like, interplay for us as followers of Jesus. In the name of God, when we are kept in the name of God, we are utterly secure. We're told throughout the Bible to not fear man, but instead to fear God. Jesus tells his disciples earlier, he says, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. In other words, we have only to fear God because God's the one with the ultimate power. No one else can do that. And yet, there's this paradox. I always got to throw some kind of paradox in my message. Paradoxically, we know that we're not invulnerable, even though we're kept, even though we're secure, that we have an enemy who is seeking to poison our hearts and our minds. We're not above falling or having our faith shipwreck entirely. There's a real danger, and, and there's a reason that part of the, the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples earlier when he was, they asked him how to pray was, lead us not into temptation. It's this exhortation that he's been harping on all throughout his teaching, he says, remain in me. To remain in him is not to sit on our, you know, spiritual couches and not leave the room. It's an active command. And every metaphor that you see for Christian faith, for our walk with God throughout Scripture, confirms this. How does the Bible describe our Christian life? It's a war. Or it's a, a grueling race that we're running. It's a house that's been established on something, and it's standing up to the storm or it's not standing up to the storm. To remain in Jesus is a grasping, it's a holding on to Jesus. Verse 15 tells us, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Jesus clearly does not want his disciples anywhere near the evil one and his influence. So both things are true. On one hand, we have complete security in God, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. The Bible says not height nor depth or any, any created thing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. But on the other hand, our lives are under siege. The sooner we can accept these two things being true at the same time, the sooner we can begin to recognize God's steadying hand in our lives. And we can strengthen ourselves against the assaults of the world and the demonic forces that are at work around you and I. Do we pray like this? How many of us in our prayer times with God are actually praying these sorts of prayers? God, keep me from stumbling. Keep me in your name. I think we treat all of this stuff, this risk that we're in, the danger that surrounds us super casually to our detriment. And Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus prays for his followers that they would be kept in the name, that they would be guarded and secure. None of us are above the danger of falling. None of us are beyond God's saving grace either. 
But we have to seek God's help to guard us. And I think what's interesting too is like what's at risk here is more than just our individual well-being. He asks that his disciples be kept in the name that they may be one, even as we are one. That is jaw-droppingly crazy to me. That even as Jesus and the Father are one, this Trinity-style oneness is what God wants for us. Number one, scary. (laughs) But also, to have one heart, one mind, one mission together, that's, that's a community that's united in passion. It's people whose hearts are burning for the same thing. What are they burning for? God's glory. That we would know it, that we would magnify it, that we'd be filled with it and drawn together. And he makes clear that when this happens, when we are a community like that, that's going to put us in tension with the rest of the world. Who's going to hate us because we're not of the world. And if we're here gathered as a church for anything else, Regen, we're missing the point altogether. Let's keep moving. So we cover the first thing that makes us participants in the glory of God. It's being kept in this name of God. The second thing that Jesus prays for his disciples, which enables them to be glorified within them, is sanctify them in the truth. Who knows what sanctify means? It's another Bible word, isn't it? We don't use that sort of word all that much in our day-to-day context. It's this idea that we've talked about before in previous sermon series, this idea of being made holy, which is set apart, being different for a purpose. Nowadays, I think uh, not everyone likes to talk about being holy. I think there's an air of superiority when we we think about holiness, you know, holier-than-thou sort of stuff self-righteousness, self-superiority, but that's not what Jesus is asking for for us, that they would be self-righteous, self-superior, heir of I'm better than anyone else. In fact, it's something Jesus desires really deeply for us, and he's provided a a way for us. So let's look at, at what that means and what's different of that. Part of the reason that some of us are resisting holiness in our lives is because maybe we've tried to be better, to be more like Jesus a lot of times before, and we failed. Or maybe we feel like the strictness and the discipline that like really trying hard at that requires is just beyond what we can handle, maybe in this stage in our lives or in general. But here's the thing, being holy, it doesn't come about when we try harder. Jesus isn't praying for that. He isn't isn't saying that we would just try a bit harder next time. Wouldn't that be funny? He's praying that that God would make us holy. How does that happen? What is our role in that process of being sanctified to be more like him? He prays that they would be sanctified in the truth, which he elaborates on, and he says, your word is truth. Truth plays this essential role in our sanctification. It, It shows us what being holy looks like in the first place. It reminds us of who God is. It shows us what that glory is like that he has. And what God says is true. The Bible tells us it's powerful. Jeremiah 23, 29 says, Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, 
and like a hammer that breaks rock into pieces. God's word is the same power that created everything we see. And it also has the power to liberate us. John 8 says this, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You may have heard before that when the Bible talks about knowing, this word that's used, know the truth and the truth will set you free, that there's more to that word know than just having knowledge in your head, having facts that you've memorized or something. In the original language, the word that's used is a word called ginosko, which I personally find humorous, you know, the word for know, ginosko, because it sounds a little bit like the Spanish word for knowing, conosco. It's a term that's deeper than head knowledge. It's uh, awareness, perception, understanding, experiential familiarity. It's even used in some cases to describe sexual intimacy in the Bible. So this truth that carries the power to sanctify us, to liberate us, is so much more than facts about Jesus that we can memorize. It takes more than that. Just saying, hey, just just remember everything that's true and you will become a holier person isn't going to cut it. The real spark that lights the fire of holiness within our hearts happens when the Holy Spirit brings an understanding of truth to us. When we can understand our purpose in him, when we know the grace that's found in Jesus' sacrifice, then the fire begins to grow within us. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3 explains this. It says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. If you believe that God is glorious, He's opened your eyes to this. What can be more life-giving, more worthy of a pursuit than to glorify him and enjoy him forever? To enjoy that which is so good, so beautiful, so hope-giving. And there's truth in that. There's truth in the glory of God. There's also truth in the grace that's been given to us through Jesus' sacrifice. And that grace is what can keep us going when we fail time and time again. In that grace, we see a Jesus who is fully committed to us. And that allows us to be fully committed to him in turn. As we close, what would Jesus have you take from this prayer today? He's shown us his heart, his priorities, in this prayer. These are his desires for you and me. Are these things that we seek, that we desire? That the glory of God be made known to the whole world? That God's glory be manifested in us through holiness? Do we long to be holy? That we would grow in holiness by seeking to be kept in the name of God? That we be kept from falling, from shipwrecking our faith in unbelief, and that we would deeply and intimately know the truth of his words and be transformed by the grace that was given to us on the cross. I think in this prayer we find this 
wide open invitation to examine ourselves, to repent of ways that are not necessarily overt, that can be subtle, uh, ways that we ask God to coexist with our own desires, our own passions, our own goals. But God is not here to coexist with those things. God is here to be our Lord. As we keep moving through this time of Lent, we've got a few more weeks before Easter, we can learn to pray in a similar way. We can learn to give ourselves over more fully to the, the sanctifying work of God in our hearts. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, your word that is true, your word that has power, your word that can liberate. God, would you let us know your glory? Let us experience it. Jesus, would you be glorified within us? Be glorified in this church, in your body. Keep us in your name, which has power to save us. Sanctify us, Jesus, in your truth, in all of your truth. Not our will, but yours be done, Lord. Amen. We're going to enter into a time of prayer uh, and communion right now. So uh, in a little bit, I think Susanna will end up at the front here. If anyone needs the communion elements, please raise your hand. But if you would like to receive prayer, if there are things in your life that you are, uh, that are at war within you, where you need the glory of God to take hold, I invite you to come and pray uh, with Susanna up here in the front right. As we prepare our hearts to take part in communion, Let's reflect on, on the eternal life that comes from knowing the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. The, this eternal life that's more than just mere existence forever. It's an intimate relationship with our creator. It's a knowledge that transforms us and sanctifies us. So today as we come together to share in the bread and the cup, we're also invited into this deep, eternal fellowship with God and with each other. Jesus prayed for our unity, that we might be one just as he and the Father are one. Communion is this vivid expression of that, a place where we come not as individuals, getting ourselves straight, aligned to God, but as a body joined by the sacrificial love of Jesus. Jesus also prayed for our, our sanctification, that we would be set apart for a holy purpose. So as we partake in these elements, let them be for us a reminder that the work he's accomplished on our behalf and the calling that he's placed on our lives is something that he provides protection for, protection from the evil one. So let's remember the glory that Jesus shared with the Father before the world began, a glory that uh, he made manifest in his love for us on the cross. 
as we eat this bread and as we drink this cup, let's do this in remembrance of him. And let's let our lives be a testament to the knowledge of God's grace and God's truth. Let's receive this. Come, all who are weary, all who long for the embrace of God's love. May we be sanctified in truth, and may our fellowship reflect the glory of God to the world. Amen.